Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is a guest that I've wanted for around two years on this podcast. So I'm absolutely thrilled to announce that I'm joined by the amazing documentary director, the incredible Lisa Downs. Now Lisa is responsible for bringing Life After Flash, which for me was one of the best documentaries I saw. To see how you go behind the scenes and the story behind Flash Gordon blows my mind. But not only that, she then followed this up with Life After the Navigator, the reason I got Joey Kramer on this podcast. It's one of my favourite documentaries of the last five years, and it tells the story exactly of what happened to Joey since making the film, and no one has ever told this story as good as Lisa. It's an honour to have her on the podcast, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a few moments' time. But you know the score by now, I do like to touch base and talk about my last episode, it only came out a couple of days ago, but I was joined by Anders Olholm and Frederick Havlid. They are the incredible brains behind the amazing film, Shorter. The interview's done really well and I want to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen. The feedback has been phenomenal as always and I can't thank you all enough. But let's get back to today's episode. This has been an interview that's been a long time coming and it won't let you down. It's definitely worth the wait and one of my favourite interviews that I've done. So here's me and Lisa talking all things film. So Lisa, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. What I want to do today, Lisa, is there'll be people that know you for your documentaries, but I want to take it back to the very early days and when you were growing up. When you were a kid, was there certain films that you were watching that made you fall in love with cinema or films? Was it, you know, sitting around at home or a certain actor or a franchise? What was those first memories you have of being obsessed and falling in love with true film? As a kid who was born in 82... I had the pleasure of seeing all those really classic 80s films as a kid, really when it got to VHS and yeah. when they were on television. So I didn't really get to experience it in the cinema because I was too young. Um, but my absolute staples are the ones that I think everyone loves, like Never Ending Story, Goonies, Fly the Navigator, Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Batteries Not Included, Gremlins. Like all those really iconic, magical 80s films that had heart and they had adventure and they had characters which were actually close to my age as opposed to films where you're watching someone in their 20s or 30s go on an adventure. Um, Pretty much much sums up my childhood and how magical it was. I was born in 82 as well. So when you were reading off those films, I was like, yep, 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 yep. Throwing the Lost Boys and Karate Kid and I'm there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Some classics there. So at that age, were you just kind of falling in love with those, I mean, they're classics now, but were you just liking the fact that there were adventures that you wish you could go on yourself, especially with stuff like Back to the Future and Goonies? Were you just like, I wish I was McFly or I wish I was one of the Goonies living these like tales that they tell? Absolutely. Because for the first time, you were watching people that you could be, that could be me out there. They're 12, they're 13. I could be friends with them. I used to go into, like whenever we went to a beach or the bottom of the garden, I remember being obsessed with collecting pebbles and small rocks and then painting them with varnish, like all different colours and putting them in a marble bag and pretending I had just found this like bag of gems that were going to save the house. And when I sell them, I I was so obsessed with just wanting to go on those adventures. And I think that's what is so magical about those films of the eighties is that they, it was so so much more a visceral, visceral experience when you watch them as opposed to um, 
some kind of other films maybe of the late 70s when you're coming in but I just it was such a magical time and and I it was those films that made me want to be in film I used to want to be an actor at first um because I wanted to be in those films uh before I realized that I think there were other people that made them but definitely that handful were so special and at what age was it during college or maybe school that you started to think, actually, I'd like to do this and not just become a dream where everyone wants to be an actor or become a director? When was it that you thought, I'm actually going to put my heart and soul into this and try and make a career out of it? I remember, as far as I can remember wanting to be an actor, um, I used to collect all the magazines every time Oscar season was on and I used to look at all the dresses. I had designed my Oscar dress when I was little and it was the one that Ariel wears in the Little Mermaid with little pearl drop earrings. And I had kind of modeled my scene. That's how young I was. Um, and I really just enjoyed acting for all through high school. And my mum had always said to me, look, I'm fully support you, but you have to have a backup career. So I thought, well, the best backup career to be an actor is to be able to write your own stuff, direct your own stuff, make your own stuff, have a bit more control. So I went and did a Bachelor of Arts in TV production um, in Australia, well, I was living in Australia anyway, but country Australia. Um, and it was during that time I realised that I was terrible <laughs> as an actor. It wasn't my thing. I wasn't very good at it. You have to, you know, you have to look good on camera. There's just so many factors that go in. And I really enjoyed directing. So it was actually while I was at university for my backup career that I realised that I wanted to be behind the camera and be creative in that way. So it's always been something that I knew I wanted to be in the, the entertainment industry film. Um, but directing came from actually being at university. And that's actually quite spooky. I normally ask guests that come on the show, did you have your family's backing? Because when you go off to university or college and you tell your parents you either want to become a rock star or you want to become an actor or a director, they're like, okay, son or daughter, but what about a real job? You know, are you going to become an accountant or, you know, have a business degree to fall back on? You mentioned then you had like a bit of a plan B, but were your family supportive or were they kind of like, well, go and live your dream for a bit, but make sure you have something to fall back on? Always supportive. They, I remember growing up and they just said, when you're winning that Oscar, buy us a house in Malibu. We want a house in Malibu. I haven't got it there yet, but I will get them a house in Malibu one day. Um, But they were always just really supportive of do anything that makes you happy. You know, they took me to drama classes and they really supported everything I did. Um, And just said have a have a plan b you know it's not to say plan a isn't going to work but just have a plan b and it turned out my plan b was my plan a once i kind of delved into it a little more and was it i mean you just said you delved into it was it a kind of a case that once you started to explore the options of directing which is very different behind the camera than in front of it did you just feel at home did you just feel that this was meant to be for you you know you said you in front of the camera you had so much to kind of be aware of and you were conscious of of how to look right and all this did you just feel once you stood behind the camera that it just clicked and it was like this is this is for my kind of destiny yeah I loved I loved the feeling of being able to come up with something and create it Um, yes you can do that in acting but the more that I because at our university we worked with designers and we worked with the the actors studying acting and design that we all worked together to create things and it kind of just became more apparent that the actors were still more reliant on the filmmakers, you know, to be cast or to, it just, 
it didn't feel like there was enough control in your career for what I wanted. Um, and also the fact that I realized that I felt more comfortable behind the camera. And I, for my third year project, I went and did a documentary in India on the Tibetan children's village there. It's run by the Dalai Lama's sister. We spent 10 days there. Um, and that was my first kind of documentary short that ended up winning an award in a film festival. And I just thought, you know what, this feels like, this feels right. What an amazing story I was able to tell. Um, and it just was something that then I latched onto afterwards. And once you'd done this project and been there for 10 days and come back and kind of started to get recognition, like you said, you won some stuff at awards and at festivals, which is amazing. You know, you must've been like, wow, I didn't expect this so soon. Did that just give you a taste then to think, well, nothing else is going to get in the way and this is my career now ahead of me. I'm going to be a director. I'm going to make documentaries, short films and win that Oscar and get that house for my parents in Malibu. I I did. Um, looking back on it now, I did, you know, when you're still growing up, you still have moments of feeling lost. So I had done that documentary and then I knew, I was like, well, what else do I love? I, I love travel. So I went and worked at a travel documentary company for a few years. Um, then I ended up moving to England where I had to take a step back in my career because I moved in the middle of the recession and I didn't realize. And so <laughs> I ended up just having to take any job I could and I almost had to start again. Um, and I was still in the mindset because I, I think because I went to do a degree in TV production as opposed to film school, I was in the mindset that you still really have to work for other people and other companies I think in film school they probably encourage you more to write your own films go off make them it's your thing be independent as opposed to a tv course where they go when you finish you can work for this network or this production company so it's a slightly different mindset so looking back I would have probably gone to a film school if I could and try to kickstart the career earlier from for doing work for myself and creating my own projects and trying to get them off the ground. So I had a few years of working for other companies, producing TV series or travel documentaries, which was still great experience. Um, but I always knew that I, I was, I just didn't feel quite right because I just thought I should be the one traveling. I should be yeah. the one coming up with the ideas and instead of me working for this other person to have their dream come off the ground. So it did take a while because you know, you're in, if you're in a job where you have a salary, it's hard to sometimes leave. And so even though I really wanted to be doing something else, there was, it took a couple of years for me to go, okay, I'm going to step out on my own. I'm going to create a company for myself and I'm going to be active in trying to make my own projects happen. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's one thing getting that experience and the hands-on experience I think is better than any textbook. You know, if you go out there and you teach yourself especially with myself of editing and recording and producing a podcast I can learn and watch YouTube videos but I'd rather just go at it and be practical and do a few interviews and learn what works and what doesn't and you've done that within the industry and you've gone on and worked in these productions but it was never your own product as the final thing so I suppose as great as it was it must have been very frustrating at the end when it was like oh, it's my name in the credit but I want to be the director I want it to be about something that I want to do it's so frustrating. It, it's really frustrating. And also I had kind of veered off also into television because of just the jobs that I happened to get and work on. And, you know, then I kind of went down a path of trying to create TV shows and thinking, okay, this is what I know. The way to do it is trying to come up with a TV show and get a commission. That was my 
thinking of how the industry works, which in a way it is, you know, if you want something on like channel five or whatever. Um, So I was kind of waylaid with that a little bit. So I did have a period of, of still feeling frustrated coming up with these ideas because I, I was doing what I thought I should be doing with my experience. Um, So it was only until the opportunity for life after flash came about, I knew I really wanted to get into feature documentaries that I've kind of found my feet in where I want to go. Um, I had done a scripted film, directed a scripted film with a couple of friends from one of the production companies, which was a great experience. Um, and I really loved it. And that was one of the things too, that like as a catalyst to kickstart me going, you know what, I don't want to be doing this in television anymore. And I just actively stopped looking for work. So I didn't have an excuse and I could just do my own thing. So brave. And I have so much respect for that. It's a hell of a choice to make, but fair play because it's paid off, which is great. It's paying off. (laughs) Paying, paying. Yes. And obviously then you started to do life after movies. So with this project, did you originally have like a, a, I'm sure everyone does, I've got mine here, but like a little notebook where you had a five or six different films that you wanted to tackle? Was it a sort of a dream project to work on certain films? We'll talk about the titles specifically in a moment, but was there dream projects that you originally brainstormed and set as a target? Well, I didn't set out to make a series. I didn't even set out to make a life after I didn't sit down one day and go, you know, what would be really great if I could do a series that celebrate movies that I love and the stars in them. What do I want to do first? It really just happened organically that I was talking to a mutual friend who had worked with Sam on The Jump, which is a TV show in England. Um, And I was at a party on a balcony and we were drinking wine and she mentioned him and I had just been really disappointed because Sam and Melody had just been at a Comic-Con and I'd missed them. And I was gutted that I'd missed the chance of meeting Flash and Dale. And she had mentioned him a couple of months later. And I said, I love Flash. I love Flash Gordon. I wonder what happened to him. Wouldn't that make a great documentary about this guy that was on top of the world? And I don't know what happened. And then I wrote a proposal and she sent it to his then agent. And then that's how that happened and so as a result of that during the making of Ash my partner who also produces them actually said to me this could be a really great series we should think about doing some more films and then that's when we sat down and I had this huge list of of what I wanted to do um and luckily enough the top two on my list are the kind of the the one that I've done and the one that I'm in the middle of filming yeah um but what it like, of course, you sit down and there's so many different films that you could do. I mean, the thing with Life After, there's so many different moving parts that it has to be not only the right film and a film that I love because independent film, you put everything into it, blood, sweat and tears, that you have to be passionate about it. But it has to be the right narrative of the lead actor, actress, whoever the, the human story is about. It has to be the right person. So there's a few moving parts, but definitely have a list but like I said it didn't start out being a series it just fell into my lap and it became what it is so with your debut of life after flash and obviously you talked about how you're at a party and started talking about Sam and it became quite a quick reality for you because obviously it was an idea of missing someone at a comic-con then oh I wonder what they're up to now and then showcasing this as a documentary 
at what point did it become like this greenlit reality of not just an idea and a, a bit of a dream project? When was it that you, you know, you said you reached out and his agents and all this, but at what point can you remember that it turned to, oh shit, this is really happening. This isn't just a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a fun idea and a dream now. It's, we're, we're getting the crew together and this is going to be something we're going to actually make. The first moment I thought that, because I had also come from this position where I was churning out so many ideas and so many weren't eventuating for whatever reason. Um, I was always really disappointed when something wouldn't happen. And they always got to a point where I, I would expect it not to happen just because it's so hard to get something of your own off the ground, especially when you're relying on someone else to say yes. The good thing about Flash is I just had to get Sam to say yes. So I Skyped him and that was the most bizarre experience. Skyped him in October 2014, where I pitched the idea to him, pitched crowdfunding to him because at the time it was the only way I knew to raise any kind of money. Yeah. Um, didn't have any experience in crowdfunding, but just figured Zach Braff just raised 12 million. Of course. <laughs> it I, can't be that I hard. Can't <laughs> yeah. you know? um, so I so I pitched it to him, and then we ended up going to Laredo in Texas to see him at a Comic Con there. And Melody was there as well in January of 2015 so it was after the Skype that I remember saying to Ash I think this is going to happen I think this is (laughs) I think I was so scared I said I think this is going to be the project where it's going to happen and he just said you have to stop working on everything else you're doing and focus all your energy on getting this off the ground so I went to Texas we shot for like a week we shot for a crowdfunding video. I launched the crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter without any knowledge or any research. Realized that you need knowledge and you need research. And, you know, I was asking for too much money and I hadn't built an audience. No one was seeing it. So it was a really hard moment where I, after a week, canceled the crowdfunding, had to repitch it to Sam and say, hey, look, we have to stop the crowdfunding, but this is what I've learned in the meantime. I need to give myself six months to build an audience. It, while I'm building the audience, I can be interviewing people in the UK, uh, but I'll build an audience, do another crowdfunding round for 25th of the amount that I was asking for the first time, um, just to get me to the States. Let's do one crowdfunding round to get to the States. And so when I had that in the bag in Texas, it was still up in the air because of the crowdfunding and the fact that I had to repitch. I didn't know if it was going to work. It failed once to get the money the second time. I didn't know if I could do it. Um, but luckily uh, we had a couple of people come on board that were huge fans of Flash Gordon came on board as EPs and APs. Um, and it just kind of, you just do one thing at a time. Otherwise, it's too overwhelming. So I would just do one UK interview and do another UK interview and do another UK interview. And then the story kind of found its way as I was interviewing people. It didn't, again, start out to be a celebration of the film. It was more of Sam's story. But to understand Sam's story, that starts from what happened on set because that's a huge catalyst of where his life took him. Um, So you really need to interview Melody if you're going to talk about his time on set and you really need to interview Brian Blessed and it just snowballed. And so do you answer you? Yeah. Question after the Skype was when I knew that I had to focus on it, but even still, you don't know if you're going to finish it. You don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where the money's coming from. I don't know if Sam's story is going to be, I had friends 
saying to me, is his story dramatic enough? What's what's his story? Is it interesting? And I said, I don't know what his story is. I haven't talked to him about it yet. Yeah. I can't find it on Google, but I just have to hope that there's something there. And it just four years later kind of came together. And that's the thing, isn't it? It kind of unfolds while you're making the documentary. And I'm a big fan of documentaries. I watch stuff on Netflix and Amazon all the time. And there's some documentaries that take a complete turn while they're filming. So, you know, there's stuff like King of Kong, where it's all about the video game industry. And there's the, they, they never set it up to be like this goody versus baddie. But then it just happened that Billy Mitchell was this villain and it really created this great story. But yeah so lamb of god then went off and did a documentary and while they're on tour unfortunately one of the fans died so it took a complete turn but you obviously can't ever expect or have any expectations of what's to come from a documentary and i suppose moving on to life after the navigator um that story i I don't even know where you'd start because joey kramer's had such a eventful life where he's been like a roller coaster he's had some really highs and real lows was that off the back of the flash one knowing that you wanted someone that you felt quite personal to knowing that you had a big you know love of the 80s films especially flight the navigator was it something that you knew might have more into it because there was a bit of a news outbreak previously or was it just because you had such a love for the film it was kind of both um because the thing about the life afters um, is that I really wanted the USP. There's so many making of documentaries coming out. The USP I really wanted to be this human interest story where you just see the person beyond the character and you get to know them. And part of being independent is trying to take advantage of being in another country when you're filming. So I'm in the UK. So every time I'm in the States, I just think what else can can I be filming for while I'm here because I've paid for the airfare, let's try and film three things at once, four things yeah. at once. So halfway through Flash, I actively started thinking about what I could do next. And instantly Flight of the Navigator came into my head, um, obviously grew up with it, loved it. And I Googled Joey, as I think a lot of people do, you know, when you do a deep dive yeah. film and all you could see on his Wikipedia page was crime, crime, stopped acting in 96 bank robbery yeah and i just remember saying to ash i have to do a, i have to try and find him i have to tell his story i feel like there has to be something there you don't just go from being this kid actor to going to jail something had to have happened there's got to be more to the story i would absolutely love to do a documentary on him and from his wikipedia i saw that he was still in jail so I was like, kind of makes it easier to find him if I can find the jail that is in and write to him, um, as opposed to someone that doesn't have any social media that's kind of out and about in Vancouver. Um, so it was definitely that. It was the fact that nothing had really been done on Flight of the Navigator before. Surprisingly, nothing had really been done on Flash Gordon before, which really helped. So a combination of, of wanting to really celebrate this film that seemed to be a film that so many people love, but didn't really get much recognition or not many people felt like they were talking about it. Um, coupled with the fact that you could have this incredible story of this kid that ended up robbing a bank. And of course you don't know what he's like 
I knew that he was going to be released soon because of the sentence that he had, but I didn't know where he was in his life. And it just so happened that like Sam, it was kind of perfect timing that I found him because even though he had been to jail three or four times and rehab three or four times and arrested numerous times, this happened to be the time that he knew that he wasn't going to go back. So if I had found him a couple of years earlier, just as if I had found Sam a couple of years earlier, it wouldn't have worked. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, as soon as you read that Wikipedia page, how can you not be curious about what that story might be? But again, you don't know where a documentary is going to go. So even when we started filming, I didn't know how it was going to end. I was fully prepared to, at a moment's notice, fly back to Canada in case he relapsed or in case he was arrested again. You just don't, he was confident, but even his mum in the interview, she was like, I hope this is the last time, but, you know, you just don't know. And so that's what's really lovely about documentaries too, is you don't know where it's going to go. And how did you get Jerry's buy-in? Because you said he was in prison at the time when you thought of the thing. Did you write to him in prison? Is that how it came about? Or was it when he came out that then you approached him? How did, how did you kind of get his investment? It wasn't obviously a Skype call like it was with Sam originally for the Flash documentary. No, it was, I had contacted him in prison through Wikipedia. And it's so hard because you don't know what's real when you read it. on Yeah. So I had read the Wikipedia and I knew what bank he robbed and what courthouse he was in. And so through some digging, I found his court number, his obviously real name and birthday is on the internet. Um, and I contacted the kind of headquarters for the BC Correctional Centre because if I realised that with research, if you get two years less a day, you go to correctional centre. And if you get two years plus, you go to a federal jail. So I knew he was in a correctional centre. And I just wrote to them and I, um, or I called them and they said, what you need to do is send a message with his birth date and his real name. And we'll give him the message if the information's right. If it's wrong, it doesn't get to him, but you'll never know that. Um, wow. if, if he wants to get back to you, he will. And so you just kind of send a message. Then his, a couple of days later, his mum called me at like wow. midnight. Um, and she was like, Joey's got, she's so sweet. Joey's got your message, but he's having trouble with the phone, trying to call the UK. So he just wanted me to let you know that this is the address that you can write to him to. Um, and so we just started writing to each other and we became pen pals with him yeah. in jail. And I wrote him this letter. You know, I didn't have anything to show at the time because we hadn't finished Flash. But I just said, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm such a fan of yours. I'm such a fan of the film. I would love to do a documentary with you, like fully collaborative. It's not going to be an expose TMZ. Where are they now? You know, you would be able to ensure that I tell your story how you want to tell it. I don't take you out of context. You know, I was, I made him feel like that it, and because it was very collaborative and we talked a lot about what could go in it while he was actually in jail and the idea of, he was saying, you know, I write songs. Why don't we include some of my music in it? And it was just this really nice kind of, we developed a really nice friendship while he was in jail. And then when we went to see him, he had been out of jail maybe five months when we saw him in person for the first time and met him. Um, but by that point, we had kind of felt like we knew each other. So it just, it came at the right time. He was, he was wanting to do something as well at the time and it just it all kind of worked out really well what I really like about your documentaries and the the most respect I have is that you're not that person who's trying to get a headline or you're not trying to undercover you know try and get some dirt on them because 
even when I'm doing interviews on the podcast, if the people have got a bad or shaded background and they've done something, even if you just want to talk about it to celebrate that they're no longer in that state of mind or they've come out of it, they always feel that you're trying to get that little headline like the sun or the news of the world, scummy newspapers. And what I really loved about your documentary is it's more of a celebration of Joey and the fact that his life was bad. You didn't, you know, ignore that, but you also, it felt like, the trust was there between you two. And that's obviously now because you've been writing to each other for some time. But the first thing I noticed when watching the documentary is how comfortable he felt, how at ease he wasn't putting on an act. He wasn't being, Oh, I'm Joey from flight, the navigator. He at times didn't come across well because that's the real him. And he's not got a, a huge amount to celebrate when his bad times have been there. And I think, for him to be that open and that honest really is a massive kind of compliment to you as a filmmaker. Well, thank you. And that's one of the things that I think, you know, the films wouldn't have turned out how they would if they weren't so open and honest. And with Sam, it was a slightly different approach. So I was trying this on Joey originally, but Joey's, his emotions are so on the surface, which is why I think he can cry at a moment's notice. Um, that it all just came out straight away, I think because we had that trust overriding. But with Sam, um, I took the approach and I thought, you know what, he doesn't, he doesn't know me. Um, he, why would he share all of his story? I don't even know what his story is. I'll start off with the first interview, just talk about the film, talk about how he got the role, talk about the other actors, you know, really kind of top level stuff. The second interview, when we'd spend a bit more time with him, of go a bit deeper, you know, how did he feel when that happened? Talk about what happened with Dino, get a bit more personal. And with every interview, I just kind of went a bit deeper to see how we felt about it, how we reacted to it. There was one interview that we did probably maybe the third or fourth interview where he, I had asked him about a sibling and he was quite closed off and shut it down. I was like, okay, you know, there's something there, but I don't want to kind of pry yet. Um, and it was actually when we interviewed all his family and friends that it was through them because he had said to them, look, as long as you just tell the truth, I don't care what you say, just say whatever happened, as long as it's honest, you know, I can't change the past. And it was through all the friends that they told me all the stories. And so I went back to Sam for the last interview and I said, look, this is what they talked about it would be really great to talk to you about these points, you know, his brother, his relationships. Um, and he went up and talked to his wife the night before and they both agreed that, you know, to, to really connect with people and to show that if Flash Gordon can go to this point, but then come back, it can happen to anybody. Um, and so we came down the next day and that's when we did that final interview where he really just was this open book, but it took a while to get there you know you don't want to it's so personal you don't want to pry yeah. too quickly and I had planned to use that approach on Joey but he <laughs> just all with Joey it just kind of all came out that first interview was like four and a half hours with wow. him just sharing but I just think with documentaries it's not my it's not my story to tell it's not my place to make them talk about stuff if they're not ready and off camera, you can always say to them, hey, look, this is why I think we should talk about it, which is what we did with Joe, you know, with his whole kind of sharing that he, that photo where he didn't have any teeth. Yeah. Um, that was a conversation with me, him and Randall, where it was like, well, we feel like for these reasons, we should put it in. Um, I said, let me just put it in. 
show you, see how you feel about it. If you're not happy, we can take it out. And, and Randall and I were both on the understanding that it shows where you've gone and how amazing this transformation. So as a result, we left it in. And so it has to be this collaborative effort because it's not my place to be kind of telling people what they shouldn't, shouldn't share. And with something the way you said, you know, the first interview with Joey was four hours plus. Um, obviously from there, there was a lot of following him around, meeting his family with so much footage. I mean, I edit my own podcast, so it's an editor speaking to an editor, but how do you get to the point where you know what's going to make the final cut? Because there must be some absolute gold that has still not seen it because you just couldn't release a nine hour documentary as much as you'd love to. Uh, does it sometimes feel really cruel on yourself and Joey that you've had to leave stuff out that you know would be brilliant, but you just physically can't fit it in anymore? Yes. Um, part of the reason why it was really important to me on my physical release to ensure that there was bonus footage too because the bonus footage for me is my way of going you know what this doesn't work in the actual film but it doesn't matter I can still release it so I'm yeah. not as precious about it being in the film because then people can still see it um but yeah you know Joey's story the four and a half hour story there was so much that he has done in his life that I would have loved to have put it all in but um I just had to be conscious of, I want to still make it this kind of around 90 minute film that is entertaining, leaves people wanting more. I don't want people to kind of get, I don't want it to drag on. It has to still be a self-contained film. Um, so I just got cards and wrote all the kind of points of his life on these little cards and I laid them all out and I just kind of went through and worked out what are the key turning points in his life? What made an impact into the journey that his life was going um, and made sure that they were in to tell his story as much as possible to see where he's gone to and where he's come from um, without getting too lay weighed into kind of really tiny details that maybe don't add anything. So it was really tricky. You know, there was, there was so much that he, that he talked about, um, but it, it was just like, will, will this move the story forward? Or will it, you know, kind of, does it, what does it add to the story? And can I still tell his story without it? Um, and that's kind of how you have to do it. Uh, it's hard. It's really hard. And it must be, I've had a lot of um, artists on recently. I've been doing a voice behind the art specials. So for these iconic film posters that we all love for films, I've spoken to the actual artists. And I think this applies still to people like yourself, how do you know when it's finished? You know, it's it's a tough question, but I try and edit a podcast and I'll want it to still sound natural. So I don't want to take too much out and I want it to sound real and give the fans the real interview. But I can't release a six hour interview if they've spoken for too long. And with a documentary, you've captured that life story of Joey, but, you know, he's 40 something years old. So you've got that massive story to try and tell in an hour and a half or two hours how do you know when it's finished for you? Do you have someone that you can rely on and you can show it to who kind of gives you an opinion or is it, do you trust in yourself? Are you learning all the time? But there comes a point when you know you have to say, right, export, that's it, it's finished, I'm releasing it, I'm done. That moment when you press press export is one of the hardest moments ever and I feel physically sick. Um, with <laughs> Flash was a really great learning experience for me. It was the first time I had edited something, anything long form. 
Um, and I had it in my head at the beginning that I was like, it's, I'm going to make it the same length as Flash Gordon. I'm going to like the arcs of Sam's story, going to follow the arcs of the Flash Gordon. And when Melody's in, that's Ornella. And it's going to be this like, you know, you put them side by side and it's going to be exactly 111 minutes or whatever it was. Um, and it just, it, I actually had finished a version that was about, ended up being an hour and 45 minutes. Um, Cause I have Ash who always just says, it's too long. It's too yeah. long. It's too long. And it drives me nuts. Cause I get so personal. I'm like, it's not too long. It's perfect. Um, so I had a version that was an hour and 45 minutes. And even then I couldn't quite have closure. It was premiering at Chattanooga film festival. And I even thought to myself, you know what, I can use this just as a test. If I still want to cut it, you know, I had to leave it open to myself. If I still want to <laughs> edit it out, if there's anything wrong, if I've done a spelling error, it's fine. Cause you're so exhausted by the end of it. I didn't even know what name straps were going where and the credits. And it was just, it's quite a lot to take in. Um, so I still couldn't really have closure at the film festivals. And then I had, and even then Ash was like, it's too long. It's too long. I said, no, you know, we had a UK screening for backers and we did a couple of other film festivals and we had a month break between the UK screening for backers and the American screening for people. And when I saw it at the American screening after a month's break, I was like, oh, it's too long. I could really tweak the ending. The ending drags on a bit. I could move this bit here. And because I had that break, I could see it objectively. So I went back after doing all the screenings, um, recut it, cut it down to cut it down by 15 minutes. So on the bonus features, you have the initial extended yeah. comic cut that I originally had in my so-called finished film. Um, and it ended up being 15 minutes shorter and it really, really worked. So what I did with Navigator is I, in my schedule, gave myself a two week period to not look at it and to come back and then try and see it through objective eyes. Um, also with Navigator, Randall was really great. And he was like, um, you know, if you want to like show me cuts and get my advice, I'm happy to, to happy to give you my thoughts. And I just said, yes, Randall, I would absolutely love to have your creative input into this film. Um, so he was really great. And he told me this trick. He's like, if you ever feel exhausted with a film, watch it in a mirror. So it's kind of backwards, like the, 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 it's like a 180 flip because then you see it with fresh eyes. Um, and so I did that and he just, he was really great. And I just felt like instinctively with Navigator, I could learn from Flash and feel like I knew when it was finished more because yeah. I could see what I had done wrong in Flash the first time. And I could see the benefit of taking out things that even though I'm really attached to, um, that it may not necessarily work for the story. So um, the second time around, it was easier. I'm hoping for the third one, it's even easier. But even, even with then, when you press export, I still think to myself, well, yeah, you know, if I see it later, Maybe I can, you know, tweak it a little bit. <laughs> Even when it's pressed the Blu-ray, you're still thinking, Even I could just chop a little bit more, yeah. So, it, it, I mean, it's it's so hard to, even, you know, watching flashbacks sometimes, they go, oh, if only I'd done this. But I now embrace the imperfections and I watch them knowing what I went through and what pressure I was under or what the situation was or if I was trying to hit a deadline and 
I just appreciate what we achieved given everything that we had um, and appreciating the film for what it is, flaws and all, would I do it differently? Maybe. Would I like to keep tweaking? Yes. But, you know, I think they can show that they're made with love. So I don't mind so much. And as you said, you know, you did your first one on Flash, you've then done Flight the Navigator and you've learned between films and you're now on your third project. For the people out there today that are listening, do you want to tell them a little bit more? I know at the moment you're still working on it, aren't you, as we're speaking? It's it's kind of going on behind the scenes and there's, there's no release date at the moment, is there? Is there, a, is there a kind of in your head a date that you want to try and get it for? I would love to have it finished early next year. Thanks yeah. to COVID, it's been slightly put on hold uh to the point that i still managed in lockdown to do the odd uk interview i actually am doing another interview on fridays in the uk so at least things can keep moving um but it's life after a treyu on never ending story and noah hathaway so i'm excited for travel to open up to the states so i can keep filming with noah we had a whole trip booked last april two weeks after lockdown kicked in so we had to push that back um but I just as soon as we can get back out, we'll keep filming. But in the meantime, at least I had done maybe four interviews for that prior to lockdown. So I've been playing around with the footage in the meantime. And like I said, have another interview on Friday and trying to get some UK interviews in. But just waiting. Europe and America, I need to open up. And is that another project that you've had on the cards when you started out? I mean, that's another 80s classic that all I remember is the the cover of renting it from Blockbuster Video and falling in love with that film. And it's kind of, it is a classic and that you've definitely chose films that they're absolutely huge classics, but for some reason they're not talked about. And then when you do say to someone, oh, have you seen Flight the Navigator? When I had Joey on the podcast, everyone's like, oh my God, I love that film. But no one's ever talking about it. It doesn't have that kind of status as Goonies, Gremlins, Lost Boys. It's it's a forgotten classic. You mentioned, I think, did you mention Batteries Not Included today or one of the early films? Yeah, those, yeah those one are, of the films know, that I loved. You know, they're, they're absolutely amazing films. Cocoon, all those 80s films that just were forgotten and, you know, never-ending story. That must be, I don't want to get into it too much because I want to be surprised when I watch the documentary, but... Was that, was that one that you were always wanting to kind of do once you started the original? That came about, the idea of wanting to do that was pretty much on par with Fly the Navigator. Um, it was harder to track down Noah. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until we actually had a lunch with Noah that he had said yes to it. Um, so it was, it took a lot longer to kind of, get the ball rolling he had some stuff going in his personal life that kind of took him away from thinking about it for a while and but again like I was saying with Sam and Joey I feel like these these are happen these, these happen when they're supposed to happen yeah. so it wouldn't have worked if Noah had said yes three years ago when we were when I first reached out to him which I think was 2000 and yeah 18 some 17 18 um when I first reached out to him so it took that long to kind of get the ball rolling um, but now is a good time to be doing it. And so just waiting. I'm so excited. I won't tell you about it so you can be surprised. Yeah. But, um, but we'll do another episode dedicated to that. Yeah. <laughs> Once exactly. we've seen it. Yeah. Exactly. And there's a couple of other life afters that we're going to start filming when I get back out to the States next. We'll start filming for, but I won't announce them until we've got that kind of main interview in the back because then I know it's official. But there's one early 90s movie and one. 90s tv show so 
amazing that's really teased now like, like tell me tell me i'm looking <laughs> in the background off. for any notes or dvd covers or anything that's in the background <laughs> and what we do on this podcast is we have a lot of people that are at film school or that are wanting to get into the industry and what i really find fascinating is the emails i get and the tweets and the instagram dms and stuff from people that say they find stuff inspiring because they want to make a documentary especially when i did the king of kong specials with yourself, um, what advice do you give to those people that are listening that might not be at film school, that might not be fortunate enough to go to certain classes and are self-taught or wanting to get out there and produce their documentary? Because we can't kid, you know, kid ourselves. It's not easy, is it, to get into? And it's a tough, tough process. But what advice do you give to those people? The great thing about doing something like a documentary is that you, there's, so much access to equipment these days that getting your hands on a camera or an editing suite is not an excuse to not do it. Um, you, no one is going to ever love your project as much as you love it is what I've learned. You have to just live and breathe it. And if it means going out and being a one man band just to make something happen, then just get a camera and start shooting. You don't have to, with a documentary, have to have a full budget. You don't have to have a full crew. There's no reason that you can't start shooting one day and then suddenly you're in production because you've officially started shooting. Um, just think if you have a feeling in your gut that you have to tell a story and you can't sleep unless you tell it or make it happen, then you have to find a way to do it and just get out and do it. Even though there'll be setback after setback, delay and after delay. Be, I cannot begin to tell you how many setbacks there will be. Most <laughs> often if you, oh, another great piece of advice is know what you want to do with the film before you even start filming it. Is it just for you to watch? Do you want to get distribution? You have to film knowing what your end goal is um, so you can factor that in. And if you do want to go through the ranks of sales agents and distributors and, and get it out there, um, the hardest part happens when you finish the film. So just keep some of that energy left over that you're going to put into making it. Um, don't scrimp on post. And amazing what a grade can do. I can't even begin to tell you what some of the raw footage for Flash looked like. Um, get a good grader. But the hardest part is normally once the film is finished how to get it out there but if you have to do it if you wake up and have to tell it then there's no reason why you can't do it and my final question and this makes the podcast quite unique is that every person that comes on the show if it's an actor director producer a singer or a band whoever's been on the show has always chosen the outro piece of music to the episode so it makes it quite unique now i'm going to put you on the spot because if i give you too long to think about it you'll be there with a list of 20 songs that mean a lot to you so it's something that comes to the heart your head your soul when I ask you the question but it can be any piece of music or any song from a band but hopefully has a meaning to you now what I want to do is we do the outro it's all wrapped up it's edited and then this song plays what's a song that you think sums Lisa up and would be the perfect outro song for your episode and it doesn't have to be film related. It can be it can any be song. whatever you want. And trust me, I've had Anthony Hopkins piece pick a 10 minute piece of classical music. I've had Mads Mikkelsen pick 
Elvis, you know, everyone has chose something different. There's never been a crossover yet, um, but it's something that I always like because it's personal to you and makes it a bit more unique. I can probably guarantee you no one has ever picked this, but this song sums sums up everything. My childhood, my teenage years. <laughs> Hanson, Mbop. What a tune. So catchy. That defines... I can't even tell you the stories relating to that band. They are probably my favourite band ever. That's crazy. My teenage years would not have been um, the same. And I didn't even know what colour my paint was on my wall. I had so many posters. That would be my song. Amazing. I mean, I was hoping you were going to pick Powderfinger or Silverchair because they're like, Silverchair is my favourite band. But um, yeah uh hansen it is with umbo <laughs> sorry we will pick freak next time <laughs> yes that'd be much better that's a hell of a tune i want to say a massive thank you for coming on the podcast i know we've been talking for a while and you know since joey came on it was really crucial for me and you've said it a couple of times on today's episode that it's all about timing i think if i'd spoken to you before seeing the documentary um it would have been a completely different interview and i'm glad i waited and got to interview joey then watch the documentary and now speak to you and your time really does mean a lot to me and I, I can't wait to then have you on again and talk all about the future projects and, you know, to know there's more in the pipeline. It's, it's really exciting. And I think you've got an amazing career ahead of you. Well, thank you. At least I know there'll be one person buying my Blu-rays. <laughs> <laughs> I will make sure that people that listen to this know exactly where to go because like you said, the extras on the Blu-ray themselves are incredible. And because now you can watch it on Amazon Prime, you don't get all those extras. You want to watch the, you know, the the outtakes, the stuff that never made the final cut. And that for me is as fascinating as the documentary and you put your heart and soul into that. And that's why I love sort of the releases by John Carpenter and Kevin Smith. They put a lot of thought into the physical media and unfortunately it's dying and everyone just wants to stream, but keep doing what you're doing because it's so important. Well, thank you. I plan to. So there's my interview with me and the absolutely incredible Lisa Downs. She is an incredible person and I absolutely loved interviewing her from start to finish. It was a fascinating interview and a real insight to these incredible documentaries that she produces. And how great is it that we've got an insight to what's coming up. Wow, I absolutely love The NeverEnding Story. So to know that this is going to be her next one blows my mind and I just can't wait. I want to say a massive thank you for Lisa for coming on the podcast and it is an absolute honour to have you on. I want to thank everyone who's listening right now. It means a hell of a lot to me. And if you really enjoyed today's episode, please share it on your social media. I say it on every episode because the power that this has is huge and it literally costs nothing. Share it on your Facebook, share it on your Twitter or share it on your Instagram. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you share it on those networks, you'll get more and more people seeing it and hopefully more of those people will check out Mark and me. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, I also have a Patreon page. If you're new to Patreon and don't understand this concept, basically it's a site that you can go on and you can sign up there on markandme.com. There's a link on there and each month you can pay as little as £1. This goes straight to the podcast to me to allow me to travel, do more and more podcasts and host the podcast on networks like Amazon, Spotify and Apple. It doesn't come cheap and all these donations that you give me every month via Patreon make a massive difference. But not only that, as a way of saying thank you, I have some great supporters of the podcast. The amazing guys at Vice Press give me amazing competition prizes every single month. Some of the best prints out there, signed artist proof prints, limited edition posters and much more. Not only that, Last Exit to Nowhere, who in my opinion are the best t-shirt company in the game, 
give me two incredible t-shirts every single month. Those go to my patrons and it's a way of saying thank you for supporting me. So if you've really enjoyed the podcast today and you want to say thank you, that's the best way you can support me. As I said, all the links are on markandme.com. I'll be back in only a few days time with another brand new episode. I said it only a couple of days ago, but September for me is my busiest month, but my best month. I really do believe the episodes that I'm releasing this month are the best I've ever done in over five years. So I can't wait to get these to you in the very near future. It's going to be very busy, but I'm not stopping anytime soon. So thank you for supporting me. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back in a few days time with a brand new episode. Take care, everyone.